All right, as I said, we are in 1 Corinthians, third sermon of the series. We'll be in chapter 1, starting at verse 10 today. Well, I wonder what you look for in a church. How do you judge a church when you walk in? Of course, it's simple to say, well, I want to hear that the gospel is preached. Okay, well, let's just, let's just establish that we agree on that. Beyond that, there are some things that help adorn the gospel and make it more attractive. Things like being genuinely loved and welcomed by the people in the church. Seeing a joyfulness in the church as they respond as to the gospel. Uh, at the same time, seeing a seriousness that God is taken seriously and obedience to him is taken seriously. That people aren't just going through the motions of church or religion. Those are all good things to look for in a church. But then there are some things which might seem attractive in a church, but which can actually be working against the gospel. Things like an over-reliance on flashy production in order to draw people in. An over-reliance on uh, humor or anecdotes or eloquence in speaking and preaching in order to make the message more appealing. Or feeling the need to just keep people entertained so they keep coming back rather than calling them to deep discipleship. All of these things, all of these tendencies, which we are certainly not immune to as a church, may seem to be helping out the cause of the gospel, may seem to be and actually be drawing people in and making things happen. But they are actually working against it. And here's why. Because they communicate that the gospel needs, a P, needs some PR help. That God needs a PR manager. Because the message of the Christ and Him crucified, and this message then being adorned by the love of God's people, isn't sufficient, isn't effective, isn't powerful, isn't attractive enough on its own. What God has done isn't sufficient. We need to help Him out a little bit. This is essentially what Paul is dealing with in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Beginning with our text today, we've kind of gotten through the introduction, and now we kind of uh, enter into the, the, the bulk of the letter, at least the first four chapters. And it's certainly just as much a, a relevant concern for us in our day as it was for Paul. This is a, just a wonderful section of Scripture, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, um, these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. So we'll be in verses 10 through 17 today. Let's start at verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul could hardly make his point any clearer, right? Fight for unity. Basically says it in four different ways. Agree, literally it means say the same thing. Be people who say the same thing. That there be no divisions, be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, a few things about this, a few things to notice. 
First of all, despite the term brothers, which Paul's going to use throughout this letter to refer to his audience, uh, we know that Paul intends for this letter to be read and heard and received by both men and women. Um, he's going to address women specifically and directly later in the letter, as he does in um, his other letters, even when he uses the term brothers. Secondly, in appealing to them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, in laying forth Jesus as the source of his authority and how he is calling them, Paul is setting some clear boundaries to this unity, right? This is not a unity with anyone and everyone. It's not a unity just around any cause, any common pursuit. So just find something you agree on. Just ignore the rest. At least you're unified. This is not a unity that everyone would agree with. Rather, this is a unity among those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, who say the same thing about who Jesus is and are changed through that. Third, in light of the rest of this letter, it is clear that by speaking of and calling them to unity, Paul does not mean uniformity or sameness, agreement on anything and everything. Um, as you may know, Paul will go on to describe the church uh, like a physical body with eyes and ears and arms and legs, the idea being that the church is a diverse group of people with diverse functions. There are various giftings and passions and ways of serving and functioning in the church. It's also the ca case that this church and most churches are diverse ethnically and culturally in where people are coming from. And there's a diversity of age ranges and life stages and all of this. So there's all this diversity going on in the church. So the agreement and unity at issue here that Paul is calling them to is not about having churches of people that just look the same and think the same and act the same. That is not something to look for in a church. If everyone in the church looks, thinks, and acts the same, if everyone in the church has the same interests and passions and convictions on everything, it is not at all clear if it is God that is actually bringing the church together, if it is unity in Christ that is actually drawing people together, or just some common interest or common enemy. But if we are a diverse group of people, as we should be, then the challenge is fighting for unity, right? How do we be unified when we do care about lots of different things and have different positions on lots of different things? How do we find unity? And that's the issue that Paul is addressing here. And so we get a little bit of a picture of this context in the next couple verses. So starting at verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that is Peter, or I follow Christ. So in the few years since Paul had planted this church, uh, it's been a, a few years, uh, he had received some reports about the church, both by way of letter and by some people coming and visiting him and telling him things. And among these concerning reports, and there were very many concerning things, um, was this 
quarreling. Apparently, there are different factions in the church, um, different preferences for the various teachers they had. So um, Paul, who had planted the church, some were saying, I, I'm, I'm with Paul. I follow Paul. Uh, Apollos had followed Paul and ca- came and continued to disciple and, and preach the gospel after him. Um, Acts describes uh, Apollos as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And then the apostle and early church leader, Peter, who we don't know for sure if he had actually visited the church, but um, evidently they knew who Peter was. So in other words, everybody had their favorite celebrity pastor. Now, you might think, what's the harm in that? Of course, different people are going to prefer different teachers and different teaching styles, different churches and service styles. You know, some people like hymns, some people like choruses. Some people like 60-minute sermons that, feel you, that leave you feeling like you just got punched in the gut. Some people like 20-minute sermons that leave you feeling like you're floating on the clouds. It's just natural, right? Well, Paul is going to devote the first four chapters of this letter, a significant chunk of text here, to this issue. And he's going to give it more treatment than any other issue in the book, including the guy who is sleeping with his father's wife. This gets more coverage. Why? Well, this isn't just about preferences. This isn't just about preferring this teacher over this teacher. At root, this is about communicating and believing that the gospel that God's working through the gospel is insufficient and it needs some help. Perhaps it needs Paul and his certain style of preaching and communicating. Perhaps it needs Apollos and his apparently more polished and bold style of speaking. You see, in that day, people were very used to judging speakers. So you had these um, traveling orators and debaters who would go around and they would give talks and they'd debate one another in public and the crowds would judge them. Who was the most convincing? Who was the most uh, smooth and eloquent? Who was the most charismatic? Who had the best appearance? And so this was a thing that they did in that culture. And the Corinthians, at least some of them, wanted to judge their pastors, their gospel preachers, in the same way. And, and it seems clear from the evidence that most of them didn't think Paul came out on top in this. Most of them probably thought Apollos uh, came out on top because he was more eloquent. But that's not the issue. The issue is not Paul versus Apollos versus Peter, who's the winner. The issue is about the fundamental nature and sufficiency of the gospel, of God's grace in Jesus to accomplish God's purposes. Does God save and change people by the proclamation of the gospel as it's received by faith through the power of his spirit? If so, then all glory and credit goes to God. God alone saves through Jesus' death for our sins. Or is that message insufficient and needing help? Does it require a a gifted and charismatic communicator, perhaps like Apollos, and is it weakened by a more soft-spoken, less attention-demanding figure 
like Paul seems to have been? If so, then there's a reason to give credit to and boast in and make much of certain gifted men and women. You might, you might have noticed that our series title is Boasting in Christ, and this term comes up a few times in these first four chapters, and it's really at the heart of the issue. Who or what do we boast in and make much of? Paul will go on to say emphatically, let no one boast in men. Rather, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is what is at heart here. What, what or who are we boasting in? And this is also what has God has been doing from the very beginning. God's purposes from the beginning and leading into Jesus and all that he did in and through Jesus has been to create a people who boast in him alone, who are satisfied in him alone, who make much of him. This is, Paul will go on to say that this is why God saved us in the way he did, not by us working our way to God, but by God coming to us in this suffering servant and being, quote, led like a lamb to the slaughter. As God humbled himself and did everything necessary for our salvation, his intentions in every part of that was to lead us, to create men and women and children who make much of, who boast in Christ and Christ alone who find him to be better and more satisfying and more sufficient than anything else. And of course, this is still very much an issue for us today. We still become very enamored with various individuals, with teachers and preachers and pastors and speakers and authors and influencers and all of this. And we all have our preferences of style and messages and personality and and the like. And again, having preferences is not, an, not, not wrong in and of itself. It's only natural that as diverse group of people, we would prefer diverse array of personalities and styles. But the problem is when we think or act like the power of the gospel, the power of God, the success of the church, is dependent in, on a certain individual or a certain gifting or a certain style of worship service. When, when we make more of and are more passionate to share about a podcast or an author or a movement or an individual than we are about Jesus, if you could only hear so-and-so, and I imagine... I imagine this is more of an issue in our hearts than we, than we realize. Uh, most of you know that I love books, and I love recommending books, and I, I could just read books all the time, and I get a lot out of books, and I think my motivation in loving books and recommending books is mostly good. I think God can really use, use them to help people. But in my heart, in our hearts, do we trust 
in the perspective and gifting and, and whatever of certain individuals more than the power and will of God to work through his word and the gospel. In the crevices of our hearts, do we tend to make more of individuals, men and women, rather than God? To, to draw this out a little bit finer, God is not dependent on any individual. The power of the gospel, the growth and effectiveness of the church, including our church, is not dependent on any individual. I mean, if it's not dependent on the Apostle Paul, and that's Paul's point here, part of his point, and Paul was the most prolific church planter, preacher of the gospel, responsible, humanly speaking, for much of the New Testament, if the power of the gospel is not dependent on Paul, it's not dependent on anyone. We, we don't need famous people to give some tacit allegiance to Jesus, as if the way people are saved is by Kanye West or Justin Bieber saying something about Jesus. That's not how people are saved. People don't repent of their sins and decide to follow Jesus that way. The hipness of an individual or of a church is not what saves people. God does. This also has some implications for um, times when influential Christians or church leaders fall and when churches fall with them. Perhaps, like me, you often wonder, like, what is God doing? How could God allow such a person with such a platform to, to fall, why would God allow this? And I'm convinced that one of God's purposes in allowing, even ordaining such things to happen, is to remind us that the gospel isn't dependent on them. We should not be trusting any individual. Now, God can certainly use individuals and churches, and pastors and authors, bloggers, and the like. Read good books. And we are called to submit to God's Word and to the spiritual leaders whom God has put in our lives to teach us and set an example. But, but all the power, all the effectiveness, and all of the glory remains in God and His Word. Um, Paul will go on to say, just in a couple chapters, um, on the same topic, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, so he uses this analogy of, of gardening. I planted some seeds, Apollos watered those seeds coming in after me, but it was God who causes the growth. And so, I am nothing. Paul, Apollos is nothing. Only God who causes the growth. And so any growth in conversions, in bearing spiritual fruit, in churches being established, and all of this comes from God. Uh, the story is told of a man in Charles Spurgeon's day uh, who went and heard one of the well-known preachers of the day, and he commented, wow, what a great preacher. I was just really impressed with this preacher. And the next Sunday, he went and heard Charles Spurgeon preach, and he came away 
And he said, wow, what a great Savior. And that is our goal. That is our goal as a church, that you would find Jesus to be a great Savior, regardless of what you think of us. And we would plead with you to have the similar, to have the same perspective and the priorities in, in judging and assessing us and whatever other church you were maybe a part of. So this is the issue in Corinth, and uh, Paul's going to go right to the heart of it. A few more verses. Verse 13, he responds to, to this issue. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. And so the questions are rhetorical, right? Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul Christ crucified for you? No, of course not. There's no division in Christ. As if you could be a Christian who boasts in Paul, makes much of Paul or Apollos or fill in the blank of your favorite teacher or preacher or influencer today. Of course, we would never say this out loud, but in reality, do we tend to find our identity not in Christ and the gospel, but in this individual? It is Christ alone who died for your sins. And so Christ alone is worthy of finding your identity in, in boasting in and making much of in worshiping. And so to make this point even a little clearer, the, the Christ that Paul is speaking of here is not just any version of Christ. There are a million different versions of Jesus in our culture. It's like the Burger King ad. Have it your way. Just create Jesus in your own image, to your own liking, however you want. No, the important thing is that we confess and are agreed about the Jesus who was crucified for our sins. And that's what Paul says in this last verse we'll cover, verse 17, which leads into the whole next section, which we'll cover another week. So this sums this all up well, but also presses the point a little bit more clearly. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So words of eloquent wisdom is apparently what some of the Corinthians were looking for. That's how they were judging their various teachers. That's how they, what they wanted, what they thought they needed if the church was going to be great. It's what their culture had trained them to look for in judging a speaker. Words of eloquent wisdom. And it's much the same today, right? We are being trained in, in myriad ways by our culture to value certain things. And some of those values, if we are not careful can make the gospel seem insufficient, powerless, even offensive. 
So for example, we value an appearance of power, right? Ever wonder how cults get started? Well, because as human beings, we tend to be enamored with someone who appears powerful and competent. This is also part of the reason we love celebrities. So we value power, we value entertainment. We tend to have the attention spans of two-year-olds. We want messages that are 140, 280 words, whatever, constant streams of information and news. We expect instant gratification, immediate payoff. And if we don't find that in something, we immediately turn to something else. And we value extreme individualism. What's in it for me? If I don't see the immediate benefit for myself, then I'm not interested. And all of this is at work within us when we approach God's word, when we come to God in prayer, when we gather as a church, when we listen to a sermon. And if we're not aware, it can lead us to conclude that the gospel and churches that preach it need to kind of get with the times. We need to update this message. We need to make it more attractive. We need to make it more entertaining. Essentially, that's what the Corinthians are looking for. And one commentator points out how Paul deliberately avoided the very thing that fascinates them. Like he didn't give them what they want. It, it perhaps would have been easy for Paul to be like, okay, so you like Apollos. He's kind of your style of, of pastor. Let's just give you Apollos. Maybe the church will grow. You'll find lots of success. You'll become powerful and influential. Isn't that what we're after? No. The, the church is not competing to be influential and powerful and respected in the world through whatever means. The church is in the business of making much of God. Boasting in Christ and Him crucified. And oftentimes that will mean setting priorities and making decisions and doing things that look foolish to the world. Paul will go on to say that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to, to many, a folly, foolish, literally the word means moronic. Like this message is not like no no PR team is coming up with this. So to return to the question I asked at the beginning. What are you how are you judging a church, a preacher, your time with God in the word and in prayer? What are you looking for for effectiveness and success? Do you need eloquence, attractiveness, entertainment, cutting-edge production, charisma, humor? All of these metrics that we use and that our world uses to judge various things are not fit for judging the gospel. Rather, we should be asking, is the true gospel of Christ and Him crucified presented? Is God's word put forward with authority? Is there a call to trust in Christ and him alone? And then also, is this message adorned? Like, is there fruit? Is it adorned by the love and the humility and the 
welcome of God's people. So it's not just about pure doctrine. It's also about our lives giving testimony to that and being changed by that. But then perhaps where this is most difficult is what do we do when things don't go as we expect? When fruit doesn't come as quickly as we expect? When the church doesn't grow exactly as we expect? When the influence we have isn't what we thought? When our sharing of the gospel isn't producing converts? And we look at others, individuals or other churches, and we see large followings and great influence, and we wonder what we're doing wrong. What do we do? Do we continue to commit to God's means and trust him with the results? Or do we determine that God needs a little help? We find some new method or some new means of doing what we think we ought to do. To be clear, God's spirit working through God's word is the most powerful force in our world. It is living and active. It is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, Jeremiah says. Jesus Jesus promises that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The cross of Christ will not be emptied of its power. It is sufficient. It is what we most need. It is what what gives us our greatest source of identity and comfort and hope again and again. And it is why we gather. It is what brings us together. And so we're going to demonstrate that now in taking communion. Communion is one way that we say the same thing about Jesus. Right? Tangibly, visibly, we agree that Jesus is Lord. We confess together that our identity is not in any other individual, no matter how gifted or inspiring. Our identity is not even in ourselves, in any giftings or accomplishments or power, success in ourselves. No, our identity is in God's love for us, manifested in the person and work of Jesus. And by taking communion together, we are just showing that our endeavor is to boast and make much of and be satisfied in him and him alone. Let's pray.